Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. Roscoe here, your co-host, soon to be joined by, today we have a very special guest, Brenton Ford. Yes, he is one of, I guess, participants in the Insight Golf Academy. He's one of Jamie's, I guess, newfound clients, and uh, we're looking forward to catching up with Brenton. Now, I mentioned Insight Golf. Please jump over to Insight Golf. Check out all of the courses that are on there. There's a free course, Mental Game Must-Dos, and there are a couple of more in-depth courses that you can jump in and participate with. And Brenton is going to give us a little bit of an insight into his experience through going through one of those programs, a little bit of uh, face-to-face time with Jamie. And it's going to be a really interesting story to unpack because Brenton's achieved some really great results, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about those. So thanks for joining us. Like, share, and subscribe, and uh, we really do appreciate you listening to Welcome the podcast. Welcome to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream, the show dedicated to fun, practical mental performance strategies for your golf game. Join mental performance coach Jamie Glazier and co-host Ross Flanagan as they discuss how to manage your mind in one of the craziest sports there is. Good morning, guys. Thank you for joining us on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. Brenton Ford, welcome. This isn't your first rodeo as a podcast uh, guest. Uh, I know you've been on uh, maybe one or two, but uh, we're happy to have you on here because we're very happy to uh, hear this story and uh, some of the learnings that you've had through uh, the Insight Golf Academy and just your own journey as a golfer now back down here in Melbourne. I know you from your time in Queensland, which is where Jamie is now. And uh, welcome to you. How are you? Thanks, Roscoe. Yeah, going well, mate. Very well. It's, uh, yeah, we've done a bit of a swap, Jamie. I was in Queensland the last two years and then come back to Melbourne, he's moved away. So, <laughs> And of course, yeah, Jamie, uh, Jamie's up there. How are you, mate? You good? Very well. Thanks, Roscoe. Very well. Um, had a nice break the last couple of weeks, to be honest. It's been uh, it's been good. I've had the family up here for just over a week. Um, did the theme parks, my uh, sister-in-law and nephew and niece, and uh, it's been, it was fun. So really, uh, really good to get a bit of a break in. They still let uh, you on the theme park rides there, mate? No, no issues there? You've made all the no, criteria? Mate. No, mate, it was fantastic. My heart held up pretty well. Um, <laughs> I hadn't been to a theme park for a while. Was, uh, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. The first one, I was uh, I thought I might uh, bring up breakfast, but I did all right, so that no, was good fun. Very good. Now, Brenton, in the intro, I, su- I said that um, you've been through one of the programs and done some work with Jamie there, but just give us a little bit of background into your, I guess, game as a as a everyday golfer, club golfer. Tell us where you're a member at, how the transition's been from playing golf up in Queensland back down to the Sandbelt. What, uh, how, what's been going on for you up until the time when you, know, you had this magical round? Yeah, so I mean, I've been playing golf maybe six years or so now. Um, started back when I was working at Drummond um, and I was playing at Northern Golf Club. And then three years ago now, I moved to Queensland and, and I moved up there sort of high single figures and quickly went out into the early teens because Queensland's very different golf than Victoria. Um, you're not you're not throwing the ball pin high and getting it to stop near the hole. It's it's a lot more strategic. And I was playing at Brisbane Golf Club, which have some pretty different greens. And and yeah, it was it was a transition. Um, and especially learning to chip and and putt around the greens, it was very sort of grabby, that really thick grainy grass. So struggled a bit, but realistically, it made me a better golfer because I ended up getting down to my lowest handicap of four point eight while I was playing there and and just playing some really good golf learning a lot more shots, you know, using tree woods around the greens and up the slopes and things like that and and focusing more on landing points with short games so you can get it to roll out. But literally two, maybe two or three weeks, my job, I work at Cobra Puma Golf um, and I was lucky enough that we get, you know, a new set of sticks every now and then. So I, I upgraded, I was due and upgraded to a new set of clubs and changed a few things and golf went the wrong way from there. So it was uh, quite disappointing and a, and a 
a str- it struggled sort of probably 12 to 18 months there where I, I don't think I shot more than 35 points in, in almost a year um, after having some of the best golf I've ever played. So that got into my head a lot. Um, and then, you know, six months of that was spent in lockdown. So I moved back to, back to Melbourne at the start of this year, um, joined up at Spring Valley Golf Club um, in the east over here and, and on the border of the sand belt. And within the first, yeah, round or two, fell in love with Victorian golf again, being able to throw throw the ball onto the green and get the stop and and be able to just read the green on the slope, not alone, not uh, not worrying about grain and, and uphill, downhill, uh, or upgrade, downgrade stuff. So, um, yeah, it was a welcome return, um, but still wasn't playing great golf. Um, so that was... That was disappointing. Flashes of, of the golf that I was used to playing, um, but just just not quite there. And it was it purely came out of the irons, I think, and changing shafts just didn't quite work for me. I wanted more spin in Queensland, um, so I changed to a spinnier shaft, spinnier ball, um, but it just didn't quite work for my game. So um, went and got refit, got a new set of sticks because I was due, and um, it's been a huge part of, of building back my confidence for sure. My golf's got a lot better. My ball strike got a lot better, and it, and then I met up with you guys. It's interesting, you know. You know what I do, and I know what you do, and we both make a living out of the golf industry. And I think you know it's pretty obvious that I change gear and I tinker and I move stuff around. and And I think that for me, is good as it is, and being able to experience all this wonderful product and be able to talk about it and do it every day. Sometimes, in relation to my golf, it can be a bit of a handbrake uh, because you know you don't get settled on golf clubs and and you know, I guess I struggle with that. Not a confidence of the products that I'm using at the time, but just the confidence in my own game, as, as you identify there. So when I hear that, and we didn't plan that, but it just made me realise that what I'm focusing on this year is to be just comfortable with my equipment. And if that means not changing as frequently, which it obviously does, I'm probably not going to do that. And uh, so it's interesting to hear you say, because you know, I think you know, a lot of people who know what we do think we live in this fantasy uh, toy world of, of golf gear and we can just use whatever we want, the latest and greatest. And when it gets down to your own game and changing, it sometimes isn't the best thing to do. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, it might surprise you, but it's we're just about to launch and there's new drivers all coming out this year and I was still using a 2019 model because I was so confident with it, so comfortable with it. And 2020 was not really spent on the golf course, but it was um, it's something that I will probably struggle to change unless I get and try something that is significantly better. It's a tried and true club. Uh, Driving is the strength of my game and it's probably my favourite part of the game um, in terms of if it's if it's going well and it generally is, it's a start off with a good it sets me in a good position for the day. So, um, yeah, I'd, and same with three woods, mate. I mean, you got to spend a lot of time with a three wood to get comfortable with it from from the people that I've heard and things in my game. So it's those the ability to change all the time is probably not. Um, it's great, but it's probably not best for your game. It's interesting because you, the driver and driving is one of the most important parts of of golf nowadays because of the the distance of balls going. But I know Herbie uh, playing Abu Dhabi this week and first time back with the TaylorMade boys um, on tour and the Sim 2, the new Sim 2, they're trying to get out there. Um, he's still using, you know, last year's model because it's just, he just he didn't, he didn't personally at the moment find the benefits in the new model just yet, the setup. And because there's so many things you've got to tweak, you know, shaft length, shaft stiffness, all this sort of stuff. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's interesting that just because the new clubs come out doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be better than what you've got now. And, and Roscoe, we've discussed this quite a few times around just that, that consistency and comfortability of, of equipment is so important for you to be able to stand over the ball and know what 
the club's going to do and know what the ball's going to do. And that impacts confidence and commitment greatly. So, um, yeah, it's uh, although for most punters looking at you guys going, oh, you can get your hands on equipment all the time. It's not all the upside, you know. It's um, So it was really great to hear Brenton go back and say, okay, I know what's worked for me and I'm just going to go back to, to committing to that. Now, I know human nature, you know, the next 18 months he might get back down to a nice handicap and he might have some grander idea of changing clubs and shafts again and he, it's just the way it is. But, um, but no, it's good to see him sort of get back to, to what he knows what works best for himself. So, Brenton, when did... You know, working on the mental game and improving your golf without golf clubs, just your own you know, self-mind and presence on, on the course, when did that become something that you needed to give some thought to? Yeah, I mean, I've committed a lot of time to my golf and, and that past sort of six years I started when I was working myself and, and wanted something to do, uh, more of a solo sport outside of work and, and picked it up and invested a lot of time in it. And then maybe three or four years ago, invested a, a lot of time and money into the physical side of my golf. So I was, you know, I was sore after 18 holes and, and not feeling great. So I invested some time and got a PT and, and worked with um, some guys around around specific golf Um workouts and, and getting fitter for, for golf and within months was playing 36 holes with no pain, which is impressive and, and a very test, a big testament in seeing on tour, like the guys are working really hard on their physique. So um, it was probably 2020. I started more in my personal life, started doing some meditation, started doing, um, listening to a lot of podcasts and stuff that I've done for years, but started actually putting some of that practice in place um, and noticed positive things in my personal life. So um, I came across, obviously, follow you, Roscoe, and, and came across the podcast, and um, it appealed to me straight away. It, it really, I thought, there's, it, it made me reflect on my game and what I was doing on the golf course, and instantly saw gaps all over the place. And in terms of what, it's not so much my swing, it's not so much potentially the clubs. It's it, there's a lot of things that are pre-round, are during the round. Um, and my and my my behaviour post round that that impacts my golf and impacts my score. Um, and so, after listening to the podcast, listening to you guys, um, and then seeing um, the inside golf stuff pop up on on Instagram, I was I was keen to give it a go for sure. So you won uh, one of the competitions uh, that Jamie had to just to introduce some people to some face to face time. But you also jumped on and purchased. You know, with your own money, um, the courses that are available to purchase, the in-depth courses. Um, we might just start talking, Jamie, about you know the face-to-face time and what you learn about Brenton and and you know how you'd seen him start and finish and evolve you know, through that process. Yeah, it was um, as as Brenton said, he'd, he'd been a good golfer, you know, down to a sort of a beneath the five handicap there for a while. So he knows how to play golf, and you know. Um, I think with the changing clubs and where his sort of score had gotten in the handicapping system these days can be a little bit brutal. Um, you know, he sort of got to a level in the game that, that probably wasn't comfortable with, and that can that can build pretty quickly that pressure and expectation and that want to get down and want to get down now and um, can force us to, to play a certain type of golf um, or play – golf a certain type of way that doesn't really feed positive outcomes. So the 30-minute chat, we just sort of had a bit of a uh, surface-level chat, I suppose, but we were able to hit a couple of key points that um, I thought could really help Brenton just go out there and commit to a process, one process for the entire round of golf and just 
let everything else just go for a day and, and let everything else just look after itself. And, um, yeah, it was, was quite interesting to get a message from Brenton two or three days later, I think, after he played his first round of golf. So I might um, ask Brenton, you know, during that 30-minute that chat, obviously sent you a bit of an audio debrief, uh, just an audio note debriefing that chat to, to help you to get clarity on a couple of key points. What did you get from that 30-minute chat um, that day? I think probably the probably the biggest thing from that was um was just the freedom. Like it, like you said, it was the reflecting on it. You asked some really great questions and got me talking, and I'm I'm a rel- relatively open book and talk about anything. So it was I was reflecting on my game going through, and and you picked up straight away that that there was a a fear of going long. Um, and that was something that sort of popped up in the discussions and you, you didn't necessarily grab and stop straight away. You let me keep talking and I, I still spoke about a few other things and then you pulled back to that and you go, this is potentially what it could be. And, and the strategies, um, and just the one thing that I noticed a lot was just how simple the process is or simple the ideas are. It's, it's not, you know, in-depth therapy and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's simple, um, simple ideas that give you, one or two things to think about um, and and can give you that mental freedom and, and the freedom to let go of the fear of certain things, whether it's three parts, whether it's going long, whether it's, you know, bunkers or however it is, there's, there's many different fears we have in golf, but yeah. the freedom. And then the final thing you sort of mentioned was how to put it in practice to, to give myself three rounds and don't care about the result. And that was huge because going, seeing my handicap go out and out and out and hitting some really good shots with new irons, but just not converting to score. And, and, and it was piling up and, and you get there and, and you have the bad practice by going to the course, expecting to shoot 36 every week when it's yeah. two to 3% of the time you do. It's, yeah. it's terrible stuff in terms of my mental preparation for the call, uh, for the game and then expecting really good results. Cause I have had them before. Yeah just piled up and then as soon as there was a double or as soon as there was a, a lost ball or as soon as I had a three part or missed a birdie part or something, it was just the negative and I'd carry it through to too many holes. Whereas the the idea of going three rounds, I don't care. All I'm going to do is commit to doing what you told me to do. Um, and that yeah. was, that was huge. Yeah, that's great. And I think, you know, on the podcast before we, we've spoken about guinea pig rounds, I call them where they're just, they're rounds we use as a guinea pig. We don't care about the outcome. We're almost going to say these are lost rounds um, and, and I'm going to commit to that process. And that helps to create that that freedom and also that acceptance and allowance to fail, if you like. And, you know, that fear of going long. I, I was a member at Spring Valley for a number of years and played pennant there. So I know how easy a fear of going long around Spring Valley can be, can be activated because – going long of those greens is, is not good. Um, so can certainly understand that. But what ends up happening, whenever we are avoiding something, we've got to ask ourselves, if I'm scared of going long and I'm avoiding going long, what else am I avoiding? And, and typically for, for most people, that is avoiding executing a shot with freedom and a commitment to a target because – if you're avoiding, you know, if you avoid going long, typically the response to that is you're going to leave yourself 30 footers, 40 footers, miss the green short a majority of time. And that's what we found with you was that just 
that fear of going long just made you so timid approaching greens. And, um, you know, once we sort of had that discussion, um, and I think the concept was using the guinea pig round was saying, okay, this is the number, this is where I want to land it. Because of my predisposition to, to being so short of the pin, I'm going to actually add three or five metres to my target and I'm going to commit to hitting that number. And um, that was one of the processes that you committed to in that very next round of golf uh, from memory. Is that right? Yeah, exactly right. And, I mean, the you just mentioned it sort of twigged, but the impressive thing was I wasn't talking about a fear from going long. I was saying that my stats in my game I'm missing as a single bit figured um, golfer, I was missing like 40% of green short. Um, yeah. And that's, I know my numbers, I had new comps, but I know my numbers and I can hit my numbers. But that you picked up straight away that that generally happens because of a, a fear of going long. And that's what it was. I'd pick the number and yeah. hit the club, but not, not commit, not swing freely. Um, and you could see it in the ball flight. You could see it in the results, but yeah, your the, the strategy we put in place was three rounds of complete freedom. Don't matter where it goes. All you want to do is do your normal process, do your normal routine, pick your number, measure the, check the wind, check the elevation, and then add five meters, 15 feet. The goal was to go long, to aim 10 feet past every middle and front flag. Yeah. Back flags um, were try to hit the middle of the green. So it was still to be within that 10, 15 feet. Um, yeah. But the back flag was commit to the back flag number. Yeah. And the middle and front flags were be long of it. 10 yeah. feet short, 10 feet past, it's still 10 feet. But yeah. if you're 10 feet short of a front pin, depending yeah. on the green, you're cooked. So yeah. that, was, that was the awesome thing um, that gave me the freedom to – um, to just swing to the number that we, we came to um, and adding that number. And, and it wasn't necessarily that I was, you know, like some golfers, you'll see them anywhere you go, that, that hit their 7 iron 160 and that's the one shot they've hit the best of their life and that's the number. Like yeah. I, was, I was conservative with my number and thinking that, you know, a flushed 7 iron might be 150, but I'll pull it out at 145 and that's my number. Yeah. So it wasn't like adding that five meters was me clubbing up and I was actually, you know, under climbing all the time. It was just the freedom to swing through. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a huge part. And and when we go through some of the results from the day, I was, I was 90% of the, probably I'd say 70% of the greens I hit, I was pin high. I wasn't 15 foot past. Yeah. I was pin high seven to 12 feet left or right. Now this round was 48 hours after our chat. Oh, to be honest, I think it was, yeah, I can't remember if we talked on Monday or Wednesday and then I played on the Saturday. So it was yeah. the same week, yeah. Yeah, I've got, um, uh, let me have a look. So I've got the messages here. I'm pretty sure it was, um, might not come up. Uh, so it was Thursday. There you go. Thursday the 3rd of December um, and then you played on the Saturday. Now, did you do much work on the Thursday afternoon or the Friday before Saturday's round? Did you hit any balls? Did you go and have a lesson? No, nothing Nothing apart from um, I normally play, yeah, I normally play three or four holes on a Friday afternoon, but all I did was just go and chip and putt, so I didn't actually play. Um, so nothing, yeah. Yep. And let's, I mean, the punters probably want to want to know what happened on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, I mean, I did my normal routine, and I guess because of the freedom, um, I wasn't, you know, one of the big things is, is not rushing to the course, not, you know, I make sure I get up, have a stretch. I'm getting old. Um, make sure I get up, have a stretch, um, get to the course 45 minutes early, usually hit a small yep. bucket, um, have a chip and a putt um, and, and probably play. I usually play because Spring Valley, you tend to be, we play two tees. So it's, you don't know, 
you you got to prepare for both. So I'll yeah. I'll um I'll play the first two or three holes on the range um, with the yeah. last half a dozen balls um, and step up to the tee. And and it wasn't I didn't hit pure shots all day. I mean, there's a couple of in my notes. I mean, I, I fatted a couple of irons. Um, I started off on the on the tenth, which is a tricky start. It's a very short, very tiny par three. Um, and and hit a, it was a 120 club, a 120 flag. Um, my nine irons 125 to 130, so hit a nine iron um, and and finished up 10 feet past the hole. So yeah. it was um, a good start. Missed the birdie part. We'll talk about parts because that's something we need to. Uh, I'll yeah. be investing yeah. a lot of money in you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was probably. I mean, when we looked at, it, I think I mentioned in the chat, but I had I had more than 10 birdie parts or nine birdie parts. Um, within 15 feet for the day. So the iron game was obviously very good for the day. And that strategy yeah. you put in place gave me a lot of birdie chances. Um, yeah. We won't talk about how many I hold, but the, it was more the point that, yeah, we hit, I hit a lot of greens for the day, um, but didn't hit every shot. Great. It was more just the freedom to, to swing. Um, and, and yeah, started off with uh, a par and a birdie. Yeah. And I've got your scorecard up, up here. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just, Par birdie, par double. Uh, you double thirteen. You bogey fourteen, and then I'm not sure if this is correct, but it looks like you parred out, and I had a wipe on eight. Yeah, yeah. So it worked out. So I was sitting. I played the back nine first. The uh, the double was um, the double was a a chip out and a three putt. Um, yep. So more of a being too aggressive um, and just just overcut it. Um, and then the, the par out was just simple golf hitting greens. Like I said, very easy sort of bird, they were birdie chances, but it was easy yeah. pars. Um, yeah. this is where it kind of went to, but on the fourth, I noticed, you know, I'd turned pretty strong, had a couple of good three pointers early on. And I have a lot of shots that I have. I think I have shots on sort of, uh, must be 16, 18, one, two, um, yep. so there's a bit of a run there where you can get some points. And, and on the fourth, I noticed standing on the tee or check my score, not check my score, but put your score in on the app coming off three. Yep. And I was on 29 points with six holes to play. Um, so standing on that tee, I was sort of, you know, conscious of my score, but I took a deep breath and, and just thought back, it doesn't matter what the score is today. It's just about all we're doing here is trying to hit it past the flag. That's yep. and, and recentered, which I, I learned in the, I've learned now in the, um, in the pre-round routine um, course on the on Insight is um yeah. is the the break it down to six holes or three holes and I I think that's going to be brilliant for my game I haven't put it in place yet and I think yeah. that will be huge because I noticed I did that in this round yeah I'd had three good holes or, or I'd made three bars and I thought all right let's do it again like yeah. without even consciously knowing that sort of technique um so yeah played really well again part out all the way through to eight um and eight's a sort of a, a, a pr- relatively short par four um. You know, it can be anywhere from driver to driver and hit, you know, you're probably 60 out, 50 out. Um, but there's a lot of trouble. It's pretty tight. A lot of trouble on the right. I hit a fade. Um, sort of it cuts in a lot and there's some some mounds and a lot of gauze bushes. So um, I, I thought the simple play is just to hit an easy two-iron down the middle. Um, it usually comes out with a little fade, just aim at the left trees. And, and it's a relatively wide fairway. I'm short of the trouble um, with yeah. that club. Yeah. Um, and, again, I was I – was, nervous because of the score but I was confident I hadn't hit um I hadn't hit that club all day but I hadn't hit a bad sort of terrible shot off the tee all day I hadn't I didn't have a miss that was in the back of my head I was confident nothing wrong felt like I'd hit a good swing on it all I did was hit it thin 
probably just didn't yeah. see enough enough for that that kind of shot. Yeah. Came out of a little bit, just a bad swing. It was just that one hole, and and it thin went right into the trees. Couldn't find the ball. Reteed it as a provisional. Yeah. Flushed it down yeah. the middle. No problem on the second one, as always. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> yeah, and the second one ended up in a divot. So <laughs> that was yeah, that eight uh, holes. That eight hole up. It's. I think it's one of the hardest, easiest holes. Like on the sand bell, I just it's such an easy hole. Like it's a three iron, a little flick wedge, and but the green's elevated, falls off the back, the right. It's such a beautiful hole, but you know you had forty two points that day with with two double bogeys. Like it wasn't a perfect round of golf. You made one putt inside fifteen, one birdie putt inside fifteen feet out of nine. So within all, amongst all that imperfection, so to speak, you were still able to rack up the points and have a really good score, which for most club-level golfers, when we go out to play, we would love to have 38 points, 40 points. That's what we that's what we want to do every day. But we don't have a – generally we may not have a simplistic plan that we can commit to from the first hole to the last hole and detach from the outcome so that we don't react to the outcomes, which is what's, you know, something that we do a lot in, in the game of golf. So – for me, it was really cool to be able to see the simplicity in in what we found in that 30-minute chat, but your ability to commit to it is really important because um, I, I've worked with thousands of golfers through the years and I'll tell them something, but their ability to go and commit to it just because they know that's the right thing to do, sometimes they don't have that focus, strength of mind to be able to commit to it. So for you to be able to just go out there and do that, commit to it, um, and feel the benefits pretty early, uh, I think is was really cool. So, and it was one thing I noticed, like upon again doing the doing the pre round course, the thinking of the great rounds I've had or the great time the times I've been playing great. One of the things that really sort of clicked with me, and, and it had before, and you know, with golf, you find a good swing thought and it disappears six months later. But it was when I have a target focus, not a swing thought. Yeah. My golf is just in another, like completely different game. So if I'm picking that small target, hitting the flag, thinking of the ball flight, doing very imaginative, very creative. I was a photographer in a past life and, and I'm yeah. very visual. So yeah. that kind of process, instead of thinking of a hand position or thinking of a takeaway thought, or I do have those simple thoughts you, you have to, when you swing, but when I'm, when my whole, pre-shot and even standing over the ball is is a target. And that day was 10 feet past the hole with whatever ball flight I was hitting. Yeah. That transitioned perfectly. And, and that's something that I reflected on and, and after the round and, and doing the course noticed that when I'm more target focused with a very yeah. simple thought, yeah. it, it improves yeah. my goal. Yeah, that's, that's great. And the next course we've got coming up, you know, in the next uh, couple of weeks, the, um, out of the pre-shot routine, we go quite in depth with the pre-shot routine, and we do talk about that internal and external attention. And it was only yesterday I got had a session with a young kid a couple of days ago, and he sent me a video yesterday of Tiger Woods uh, doing a clinic, a putting clinic, and it was back when he was like three years old, I think. Earl, he was saying that Earl, his dad. As a three-year-old, you don't really know the difference between a foot and a metre. Like, that's just not something you can you can really sort of process. But Earl used to say to Tiger, when you look at the target, 
to take a picture and then putt to the picture. When you bring your eyes back to the ball, just simply putt to the picture. And um, you know, I put a little video up yesterday too of a, of a pitching and chipping session I had with a with a good uh, junior here on the Gold Coast and just he was a bit internal. Um, I just stood on the green, put my hand out and said, just, just try and hit it in on my hand and just pitch to the pitcher. When you look at my hand, take a picture of it, come back, and it's, it just activates that external attention and helps to free your body up to perform. And, um, you know, especially if you've got fairly sound mechanics, that is really, really good. If you don't have sound mechanics, it's going to help, but um, you're obviously, you know, you're obviously limited with what you can do with your mechanics at uh, a poor. So, um, yeah, so that, that's really, really great. Um, and you've enrolled in both the inside courses, the pre-round course and the 18 tips to managing frustration. Yeah, for sure. And I think that one's going to be a good one. Um, yeah. But, yeah, just uh, recently finished the, the pre-round stuff and, and there's I took at least sort of six notes to to um, improve my game and, and to start to put in place. So I'm really excited to get that going. I'm actually flying to Adelaide on Sunday um, for a golf trip for the boys. So hopefully I can take a bit of their nice. coin and nice. <laughs> put some of the strategies in place. Nice. And I think, you know, we talked before about equipment and, and the impact the equipment has on, I suppose, the, the sense of consistency and comfortability that comes from that consistency and, you know, the pre-round routine or anything. It's uh, the more consistent we can be, um, the more comfortability we're going to create, which obviously helps dramatically. I know you spoke before about, you know, your pre-round, you get there 45 minutes before and you go through a similar process each day. You play a couple of holes before you leave the range just to get yourself ready for that environment. So, um, yeah, so that, that's really good. I think that, you know, a couple of other podcasts, Roscoe, we've talked about cognitive consistency and, and having the same mental process with every shot, not reacting uh, and changing swing thoughts or changing, you know, what you're focusing on from shot to shot because that just creates that, that confusion and, and ultimately uh, a little bit of cognitive chaos. So, And I think uh, that, that came into play the next hole. Like, I mean, I've, I've, had, I've wiped the eighth. I'm, I'm happy with my round, but I'm standing on the ninth, which is not an easy tee shot. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of trouble left, driving range right, um, and it's pretty tight. And you've got to hit it because it's the longest hole, longest par four on the course. Um, yeah. and now you're nervous and I'm carried, trying not to carry what was on the last hole. So that sort of consistency again was bringing it back, thinking about the good drives I'd hit all day. Yeah. We can commit. And, and one of those sort of anchors that I've learned to use from the course is probably going to be the word commit, um, yeah. and commit to the target, whatever target that is. And, and that's what, that's what I did and hit a good drive and hit a good shot and two putt par and three points on the last and away you go. It was, it was still committing to that target and that, that freedom of thought that we had and not worrying about the double or the bad shot on the previous hole or any bad shots before that. Yeah. And on that last hole, did you, did you have an elevated heart rate? Yeah. And, and, and that like, and, and the adrenaline of playing a good round and, and hitting like, again, I, I sort of just got up there, elevated heart rate again, sort of part of the sort of practice I've learned with, with, um, this and, and meditating is just to take that breath and, and center and, and then hit a good drive. And then I knew on the next, like I had 135 to a sort of middle sort of back flag and my eight irons 138, but I knew with the adrenaline with it in the, like where the ball was positioned and the shot I was going to hit, I hit a fade eight yep. and finished right of the hole and, and it was pin high. So I knew that yep. adrenaline, I could take that in. I had a clear mind. Yep. Um, I wanted to be past the hole, but being aware of what, I was feeling in the conditions I was in, yeah. change the number and change the club. 
I love it. I love the fact that you almost invited the adrenaline. You had this healthy relationship with it, and then you knew what that was going to ultimately do to your performance. And just as you said, you had clear, you had a clear mind, and you made a decision that was going to factor all that in. And um, that's you know that's the most uh, for me. That's one of the one of the best things about that round was just how you managed to come back from that that wipe on eight and just soak it all in on nine and then execute. Because a lot of people perceive elevated heart rate, adrenaline, nerves, whatever they might call it, means, you know, a disruption to their performance. It's going to have a negative impact on performance, but it just, that's just not reality. It, um, that adrenaline, that elevated heart rate, providing you have a healthy relationship with it, you uh, invite it in and allow it to be there can certainly narrow your attention, narrow your focus and help you to, you know, perform to a high level. So, um, you know, whether you're a, whether you're a tour pro or a, or a club level golfer, it's the, it's the same thing. So that's really great that you're able to sort of, um, you know, put that out there for everyone to, uh, to soak up. Brenton, I have a question because you mentioned, you know, you still identify uh, putting and uh, as a challenge around that, but do you find you're in a different position now in round when you face that challenge? You know, with the you know, you identify that it's still a challenge and you have to work on it. But do you find you have a different mindset towards uh, approaching that challenge now? Yeah, I think so. And I think realistically, the the fear and the challenge that that we faced with irons is is exactly the same with putter. Like it's it's the fear of potentially the fear of going long. It's the fear of failure. It's the it's missing the birdie putt and having a three four foot comeback and missing that. That's the that's the thing that's generally for me in my head. So I can put into practice what I've learned so far is to go, I have this 15 foot putt. I'm okay with a three putt. I just want to get more experience in holding putts. Like I have an eight foot putt, read it, hit it, commit to it. And if it's, if I miss the comeback, it doesn't matter because I'm just using these rounds as a guinea pig round. So that's my plan going forward. And, and I think hitting more greens, being more confident with my game in terms of my iron and my driver, it then bleeds into my putting, but also it gives me more chances. I mean, there's a big thing about, I've said, seen a few articles and, and heard a lot of podcasts about, but like Adam Scott, they ridicule him about his putting and beat him up about his putting, but it's because he has so many putts, like yeah. he, as in he has so many good looks yeah. that you, you're naturally going to miss it. And there's a really great article um, from Matty Guide on golf.com or Golf Digest or somewhere years ago, and I can't find it anymore. But it was basically looking at the tour stats, to tour putting stats, comparing it to a, your club golfer. You can't expect to hole eight out of ten eight footers when the tour don't even hole sixty percent or fifty five or whatever it is. It's so that really woke me up in terms of lowering my expectations on on putts, but on how many I hold. But I think yeah, I think I'm a I'm a die putter. Like I'll try and die it in the hole. So that the short is always the miss, and and I think. I think seven of those nine putts that I missed um, or eight putts that I missed was, was short and in the jaws. So the, the technique is there. I don't have to worry about technique. It's more about the mental side. And that's something that I'm looking forward to practicing with Jamie, but the it's, it's definitely using that, what that experience I've had with the irons to transition into my putting um, is something that I'm going to try to put in place. I have an interesting, yeah, an, sorry, Jamie, I was just going to say, I have an interesting anecdote about putting and it's just, only fairly recently dawned on me because we've been talking about stats and performance inside distances, as you just mentioned there, Brenton, but helping people with putters, you know, trying to find a better putter that suits them and going to give them more confidence and comfort versus their old one that they've been toiling away with. But they stand on a putting green 
and they don't roll every putt in. You know, they've, they've picked up a $200, $400, $600 putter and they expect that it's going to change the world like that. And I actually stop and say, do you realise the, the stats of tour pros rolling putts in from that distance? No. You give them some of the figures and it's almost as like it's okay. Then they go, oh, right, oh, it's okay to miss that putt with this new putter that I'm trying to buy. So let's come down here and try a few from down here and then go back. And, and that just changes their whole mindset. It's, it's interesting to watch people just change in an instant yeah. like that. Oh, Roscoe, could not agree more. People's expectations of what they should be doing from distances five feet, eight feet, ten feet is their expectation, club-level golfers' expectations of what they should do is more warped than an elite amateur golfer or a professional golfer. It's just unbelievable. And I'm mainly because they're not, they don't have access to the data. You know, tour players uh, and elite amateurs, uh, they get access to data so they know. But expectation management is huge. And, um, and it's on it's TV. A, it's what you see. They only televise the people holding putts. Holding putts. So yeah. every bloke on TV is holding 12 foot after 15 foot after 10 foot, like every yeah. time. And yeah. and yeah. the transition as well is on the on the putting green. Like you, you yeah. don't have that expectation. And I can hold a lot of putts on the putting green. You kind of forget the misses as well. Yeah. But you get on the course and it's under pressure and that's the kind of yeah. – Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, you know, really interesting when you said, Roscoe, about, oh, it's, it's okay to miss a putt from 10 feet with this $600 putter ball. Not only is it okay, it's actually very normal for you to miss a putt from 10 feet. You know, like um, a tour pro has a 38% success rate from 10 feet. Now, that's someone that spends hours a day practising their putting with – the most state-of-the-art, you know, information and, and, and coaching and and they make 38%. Yet if I put, you know, Sammy, a 12 handicapper from Southern Golf Club on the 13th green with a 10-foot putt on Saturday, he perceives he has to hold it. I have to hold it. It's 10 feet. I've got to hold it. Well, no, you don't. And then that's what creates the freedom is that allowance and acceptance of failing, so to speak, helps to free you up and increase your chance and possibility of hitting a good putt, which we know is going to give you a chance of, of, of holding it. So, um, yeah, it's just a, you know, just a little bit of a different mindset or, or viewpoint or look at things, reframing, you know, how you approach putting. Um, and uh, have, you had, you know, have you had success with that in, in the past with clients? So, like, for me, the realising that from stats, which is fantastic, I've used Arcos for a few years. Yeah knowing that a 30 foot putt, I have a more, I have a much more likely chance of three putting than potentially obviously one putting, but maybe even two putting depending on the distance yeah, and, and my skill level. But yeah. I, I then, I know that I'm more likely to three putt. I'm okay mentally with the three putt. I don't walk off the green blaming my putting. I blame yeah. my approach shot. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the time in my, in the past, I would, I'm such a bad putter. I'm such a bad putter but it was nothing to do with my putting. It was, I was putting myself in a must get up and down situation or a, a terrible 40 foot from the flag. So it has nothing to do with my putting. It was, I was putting yeah. myself in positions where I was guaranteed to fail. Yeah. And an interesting, you used a word there that, um, there's a word that you used in that statement that for me in my pos- position, I, I probably an unproductive word. Blame. Blame. <laughs> like the acceptance of 
okay, I hit an iron shot to 30 feet. The acceptance of, okay, I have three putt, it's okay. Like, we are unbelievably harsh and critical on ourselves. Um, and it's that harshness and that, that judgment of ourselves that triggers a lot of un- other unproductive mental patterns. So, one thing that, that's really powerful is an acceptance for what we do without judgment, without blame, just full, complete acceptance, because then we don't carry that into future performances. And then we don't react to that. Well, I need to hit this shot better because the last one I left 30 feet and I three-putted. Then you're now reacting to some an, an event in the past without clarity on what have I got in front of me that I need to completely commit to. So, um, but it's just how we how we're wired. We are so ridiculously harsh on ourselves. It's 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 amazing. I had a couple of sessions the other day with some elite um, uh, elite players, and I was just like, wow, you just beat yourself up so often and so much and so harshly. And we look at the relationship you're creating with yourself. That's obviously not one of productivity and and one that facilitates performance. So I wonder if we dig a bit deeper and we look at how much acceptance you have out on, on the golf course with with shots that are not quite satisfactory um, and the impact that that might have during a round of golf. Yeah, I think the the time, the more time I play and the more time I've, I experience what you've said and what I'm learning from the courses, the, the more I have that acceptance, the more I have, I'm able to isolate and separate every shot. Yeah. And I think it being, again, maybe making that a part of my anchor is to commit to this target, this shot. I know um, the right now, right here, right now, Ryan Ruffles sort of thing appealed, uh, very much resonated with me and, yeah. and it's all about this shot. So if if you hit your driver far right, don't, which we see, I mean, you probably see it in the net, Roscoe, like whenever you're fitting someone or, or someone's hitting a driver, they'll hit one right. And then instantly the next one is this big sort of pull left and you go, Oh, it's going both ways, but it's not, it was the, it's you countering for the last shot. So you'll yeah. always disregard that second shot. Cause the third one is going to be more yeah. how it would feel. So it's, it, I think the, I used to carry that negative, especially with, yeah, especially with my sort of, when it was my best part of the game. So when yeah. I was hitting a bad drive, I would yeah. even in the chip out, or even, I'd be too aggressive on the next shot trying to save something when yeah. I've become more aware of, I have a shot on this hole or I've played a bad one. Now, pl- now put yourself in a good position to play a good one. And that yeah. happened on one, actually I hit, I hit my drive right in the trees, yeah. chipped out, even didn't quite chip out to the fairway. I had one fifty five into the first, which is not, you know, it's, it's a reasonably big green, but I've got a shot there. So I'm like, okay, get on the green, the target is to be passed. And I was hitting six on in. So it's like normally you've yeah. got wedge in there yeah. and um, and hit it to 12 feet and ended up binning it. So it's like it's yeah. saved a really great par, but it was the freedom to not blame that first shot, not even yeah. worry about the chip out that wasn't great. It was yeah. it committing to a good six on, just getting it past the hole and yeah. ended up pin high and it put you in a good position. Yeah, and one, one, one little drill just come to mind with your putting that I think could be quite useful. Uh, Herbie does it every day with, with Dom, his coach. Um, it's called the 75-foot drill, but it's for, for a club-level golfer, I'll go back to if you're putting on a, on a green like the Valley, they've got beautiful greens, so maybe 40 feet or 50 feet, and it's you've got four balls and you step it out around the hole, five feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 feet, 
and you do four rounds of that. So you putt each ball and you're trying to hold 40 or 50 feet worth of putts in four rounds. There's 200 feet of putts available. And you're trying to hold, um, actually, no, what is it? Uh, sorry, 300. So let me just do the math. Hang on. So 20, uh, 35, 45, 50. Yeah, so there's 200 feet of putts available. And, and you're just trying to hold 40 or 50 feet. Just set a target, whatever you think. Um, and it just focuses on I'm trying to hold this putt. It doesn't matter if it's three or four feet past. I'm just trying to hold this putt. And it really creates a focus on on just holding putts. And that's a really good drill to activate before a round of golf because it creates and triggers the right mindset and approach to putting. Um, and do you find when you get to that, you've held 35 and you've got two or three putts left, do you find that gives you that in-game tension, that in-game experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it puts you in that environment of if you've got a 10-foot putt on the last to, you know, have 36 points, you want to be prepared for that environment. You want to have some history and experience with actually having to perform while your mind is is, is going through those thoughts and, and, and that environment that it's been created. So that really is, prepares you so well mentally for these situations that you face in a round of golf. So for me, it's, you know, I'm happy for you to hit three putts around five feet past the hole and I'm happy for you to miss two of them. Because I know with that mindset of trying to hold putts, if you miss two five-footers, you're probably going to give yourself a chance to make two, three, or four more putts of 10 feet, 15 feet, or 20 feet. So yeah, yeah, That's really interesting. Like you, you, your bank account's got more feet of putts hold in it, even if you miss a couple of five-footers. And I guess the other thing in the past I've, I've done is a lot of your practice drills are penalty-based. Yeah. So it's you're doing the clockwork, and if you miss one, you got to start again. Or yeah. if you, you're doing back in the ladder drill, and you miss one, you got to like you go back a step. It's a lot of punishment. Whereas that drill seems like it's very much more freedom, and you get the reward of holding the putts, and it gives you a bit of in-game pressure instead of the the failure pressure. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, positive reinforcement is the feeder of confidence. Now, confidence is one of the most important elements to to performing well making ourselves feel good about what we do is crucial. But a lot of the drills, as you said, the failure drills are set up are just reinforcing, I failed, I failed, I failed. Um, and it's that, it's that, you know, that goal of I want to, I want to have 36 points or more today. Well, you know, five to 7% of rounds are going to be at that score. So why create an environment where 90 odd percent of the time you're going to fail? Like that doesn't make sense to me. Why not set one? Like I set goals of, you know, five rounds in a row of 30 points or more because your likelihood of success is a lot higher. The freedom uh, to fail is a lot higher. So if you, if you have a miss, you still can achieve your goals. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, that putting drills are just a really great one for a variety of different reasons, mentally and cognitively, not just from a, a performance point of view. So um, I think that could be a really good one that you could start to um, to put on in your practice sessions and, and your pre-round uh, putting warm-up. I like it. So, Well, that's been a very interesting insight into your journey, Brenton. Uh, I think, Jamie, unless there's any more that you no, want to cover off with Brenton, yeah, for me, it's no, just, it's just just great that Brenton, you know, signed up to the courses, committed to that journey and, um, you know, 
for me too, had some some rewards from that work that he's put in. That's it's been fantastic. Absolutely uh, pleasing at no end to uh, see someone experience success with working on a part of their game and getting results and and also knowing that there's still work to do and even more upside ahead. So uh, Brenton, I really appreciate uh, being able to sit here and listen to that story uh, and be a little fly on the wall while you guys talk about the work that you did and keep committing to that work. Uh, Appreciate your time. I can't wait to see the new products that uh, the company that you work for, Cobra Puma Golf, are releasing, the new Radspeed uh, driver looking forward to seeing and hitting that and you know there will be plenty of people that will be lined up for that and people that will need a new product not just not just want to gravitate to a new product but just need it because it's it's better and it's going to help them more and going to help set up that confidence and uh, so i can't wait to, to see that great job uh, to you and the team for bringing that to the market uh I just need some. I need some rad speed in my life. I don't know what it, I don't even know what rad speed is. But yeah, it just but sounds, well, sounds amazing. When you, ha- good, you need it. When you <laughs> hang around these marketing guys uh, from the golf companies, uh, Jamie, you know some of these they get it right sometimes, and the Cobra guys are very marketing oriented and they're very good with their names. But rad. Rad speed. We've got. A, I've actually got a staff member whose nickname is Rad, and he's. He oh, is, he must be lining up. He's frothing ready. He to go is for frothy it. for the new Rad. Rad is ready for Rad. Anyway, tell him to go. check out uh, Ricky's bag this week. It looks really good. He's got the big Rad on the side of it. He'll probably uh, be lining up for one of those too. But now, thanks for having me on, boys. And and if I can say anything to anyone, I think the to the listeners is is investing in, and they probably are already listening to the podcast. But investing in the in your mental game is huge, and 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 I think it's it can take you to that level that you you may be plateauing with your game. But it might not be your swing. It might not be more about investing in clubs or, or whatever it is. It's it's. I think the the mental side of it is huge, and 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 even transitioning it to to your everyday life. So it's you want to enjoy your golf. You don't want to be coming home, spending your Saturday frustrated on the golf course, and leaving angry and going kicking the cat. So it's. I think that's the that's the one thing I'd say is is thanks for having me on and and really taking time and, and investing the course. It's, it's it's a brilliant way to do it. I'm excited for the next one too. We know for less than a price of a golf lesson. You know, you can get access to that material from the comfort of your home, from the comfort of your computer, your phone. You can take it to the course. You can look at it as much as you want. The videos, the content, the maybe hours worth of videos that we've got on the Inside Golf Academy uh, for the less than a price of a golf lesson that can change not your swing but your mindset and your approach and it's really valuable stuff and you've helped us uh, articulate that and, you know, it's a really easy to demonstrate example. Awesome, awesome. And I've got to, I've got to pay the light ring just – one little uh, prop there and see the light ring. Yeah, it's <laughs> beautiful. I haven't got mine on this morning, but uh, I like it, Roscoe. Making me jealous. Well, thanks for asking. Thanks for telling me. I've actually got dual light rings. You can see another one over there backlighting the beautiful PK picture and the Critch Island in this wonderful background that I Look at this bloke. curated Look at this. during lockdown. <laughs> All the gear. And so <laughs> All, the, all the gear and no idea, they say, isn't it? Hey, you started it, Jamie. You, you went with the light ring and no one knew but the commentary around your beautiful Gold Coast skin – um, which we all knew was from the light ring. I had to get on board. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've got to pull it out again. I haven't used it for some time, so <laughs> fantastic. Uh, very good. Well, thanks, guys. Brenton, let's have a game of golf uh, pretty soon, maybe down here at Lonsdale Links, or I'd love to come. I'd love to, mate. I've heard great things. Very good. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Appreciate that. Like, share, subscribe. Do all the wonderful things that help this podcast grow and stay in the ears of the people that want to help improve their golf through improving their mental performance. We appreciate your time. Jamie, thank you. Brenton, thank you. And until next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast, we look forward to catching up with you. Thanks for listening to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast by Dare to Dream. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head over to daretodream.com 
www.ebrickandmortar.com.au for exclusive access to the free video program, Eight Tips to an Unbreakable Mental Game. Join us next time on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. <laughs>